Father, we recognize that as we sing a song like that, our words hopefully are expressing the passion of our souls. And we long, Lord, to see Christ glorified throughout the entire world as the waters cover the sea, so may every place be covered with glory. It is there, it is there for the seeing, and we often miss it. So open our eyes that we might behold your glory. But also, Lord, make us individuals who spread that glory, who live that glory, who shine with your glory. And I pray, Father, speak to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say religion is very popular in America, but not very spiritual. Or I could say that it is spiritual to a point, but not very biblical. Every survey that is taken of America indicates that we are a religious people. But I hope you understand that religion is not enough. Religion is often man's attempt to seek God where Christianity is God's successful mission to rescue man. And as we come to the scriptures, we find in the Old Testament that Israel was very religious, but not often very spiritual, or spiritual, but not always biblical. And so the Lord came and dealt with his people in many different ways. He sent his prophets to speak to them, and one such prophet was Jeremiah. In the 7th century BC, there were great revivals under King Josiah. But when his son Jehoiakim took the throne, the nation began to depart. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, religion was popular. Jeremiah was sent to proclaim God's truth in an age that was slipping, losing its hold on what was truly true. Jeremiah describes his times, and he gives to us the heart and attitude of God in the early chapters of his prophecy. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 2, we read these words, I remember, Israel, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert. Israel was holy to the Lord. You were the first fruits of the harvest. But, but my people had exchanged their glory, that is the glory of God, for worthless idols. Has a nation ever changed its gods like Israel has? Nations are, like ours, are often in the process of changing their loyalties. And such is true, I think, in America today. In chapter 2 of Jeremiah, he said, Be appalled at this, O heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. First, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And second, they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. 
Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you have been unfaithful to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. And yet he says, return, O faithless people, return, and I will cure your backsliding. Isn't that amazing how God continues to open up in invitation of mercy and grace and forgiveness to those who have wandered far away. But sometimes words are just that. They come in one ear and go out the other and very often do not settle long in between. We acknowledge them, we say we hear them, but they don't register in our soul. And so sometimes God says, well, maybe this is a better way to teach you than merely expressing words. Let me give you an illustration. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah chapter 18 and let's go down to the potter's house. Jeremiah 18 and verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. Nothing here would have been too shocking to Jeremiah. He did most of his prophecy work in the upper part of the city where the temple was. And to go down to the potter's house most likely meant to take that main road from the upper city to the lower city, which was like a mall. It was a, a, a broad road, a boulevard with shops on either side, and you could find anything and everything. That was the place of the market. That's where people would gather to talk. It was indeed the community center of the day, a busy place. And Jeremiah knew exactly where the potter was. So he began his trek down to the potter's house and God was going to give him a message. He was well aware of who the potter was. This is a major industry in the Near East. There are over 30 different Hebrew words to describe the potter and the process. Just as I'm told that there are something um, like 30 different words that the Eskimos use for ice when we might have but one. I wish we had a few more words this morning for ice. Ice black, ice slippery. We had a few more adjectives. But in Hebrew they had so many different words that would describe the potter and the process because it was so common. The potter was always there, a familiar figure, a common scene, an intelligent individual, capable, skillful, an artist. Making things utilitarian, common, and making things beautiful and gorgeous, and sometimes even mixing the two. So with Jeremiah, we go down to the potter's house this morning in our imagination to try to grasp who this guy is and exactly what this guy is trying to do. 
And one of the first things I think we notice as we go down to the potter's house is the things that he is working with. Of course, the potter has a wheel, but it's very interesting when it talks about the potter's wheel in verse 3, it is a word that is plural or speaking of a dual wheel. And the most common wheel, perhaps in that day, well known in Egypt, was the two wheels, a top wheel where the clay would be and a bottom wheel that would be worked uh, by the feet. All the way from the Bronze Age, we're told the Egyptians, uh, 3000 BC and onward, were using uh, this type of wheel and this type of pottery. Sometimes the wheel was stone and sometimes the wheel would be wood. And in the process, uh, the potter, the skilled person, would get, I think, an amazing exercise for the day. But as he would work, he would throw the clay. I love the terminology of different professions. You don't just work the clay, you throw the clay. And in a sense, you take it and throw it on the top. That's part of the kneading process. And then there was, of course, this uh, clay, um, a mass of mud, undefined, rather unsightly, often with defects, but it had potential. So a skilled artist working with a mass of mud that has potential. Now, we don't have to stretch our imaginations too far to get an idea where this picture is going, right? The potter is God. And you and I are a mass of clay, undefined, with defects, unsightly, a mass of mud, yet with potential. <laughs> we are made in the image of God, but flawed. Also in the process, there is added to the clay water to make it pliable and soft. Fire to make it tough. And paint and glazing to make it beautiful and again to make it stable. Simple yet sublime is this classroom of God's. Where like Jesus, who would take a parable... And used well over 40 of them to teach deep spiritual lessons. Takes the things of everyday life to teach us a perfect example. To give us a perfect example of our relationship with God. How it is in one sense one-sided. And in another sense often changing. If I were to look at this and go with Jeremiah to the potter's house, I think one of the first things that would come to me would simply be this, that the potter, God, is in absolute control. He is in total control. You'll notice in verse 5 and 6, the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He is conscious of his right. The potter knows he is in charge. If we, if we would personify the clay, we would say that sometimes the clay is not always aware of who's in charge. Certainly that is true. 
in our situation. The clay has no rights, none whatsoever. God is in complete control. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, we read these words. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, he did not make me. Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing. And yet this clay rebels and this clay becomes unpliable and this clay resists and this clay says to the potter, you won't have your way with me. And you and I can look back on 2018 and remember times when we, as a mass of mud, said that to an almighty loving God who is trying to make us into the image of his son. God is in total control. We read in Romans chapter, mine, chapter 9, O man, who are you to reply against God? Shall the thing formed say to the one who formed it, Why have you made me like this? A quotation from Isaiah 29. So it's established early on and quite clearly that the potter is the one who is in control. He's the one who has a design for the pot. He is the one who molds and shapes the pot. You know this all too well, except when it comes into our human life. And then we resist and try to take control. Shall the pot say, he did not make me? Shall the pot say, he knows nothing? Shall the pot say, why did you make me? like this if it's going to acknowledge a creator that sounds a lot like America it sounds a lot like the church and so we have a lesson to learn in the potter's house but may I remind you that the potter is not capricious he's not whimsical impulsive erratic fickle like you and I no, he has a purpose, well designed. He is not arbitrary. He is working to make something useful. And he is working to make something beautiful. The clay lacks all of those things as a mass of mud. It lacks expression and refinement and utility and beauty. And God says, I want to do all of those things in your life. But I'm the potter. You're the clay. It was Jeremiah who said in Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you. Quoting the Lord. Plans to prosper you. And not to harm you. Plans to give you. A hope. And a future. But you're messing it all up. That's what Jeremiah has to conclude. My plans are good for you, but you interpret them as evil. My watch, for, watch uh, care over you is constant, but you deem me as absent. You think you know better than I, and yet I've got a plan that is flawless. 
if you go to verse 7, it is interesting. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, in other words, that's my plan of judgment because of their disobedience, think Nineveh in the time of Jonah. And if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. God's righteousness moves him to plan judgment on the disobedient. But if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it turns to evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good. I had intended to do for it. No ominous prediction is set in concrete, dooming us, and there is no promise so guaranteed to give us license to be lazy. For the potter has plans, but he calls us to be pliable, to yield, and to surrender. I think the first thing we see is that the potter is in control. He's not capricious. He has a plan. And I know the plan he has for us as believers. It's a good plan. He wants to make us like Jesus. He has committed himself with a strong word, predestination. He has predetermined to make us like Christ. And the potter will do what he will do. The second thing I notice is that the potter is very hands-on. He is not distant. This is verse 5 and 6. The whole idea is, the, the Lord says, like clay in the hand of the potter, so I will do the work. It is an amazing thing to me when I watch someone do their pottery work how messy they are, how messy the atmosphere is, and yet how skilled they are to bring out of that mass of mud something beautiful and something useful. God's interest in us is perpetual. His attention on us is constant. Read Psalm 121. He is the God who doesn't sleep. And his hands are powerful and they are purposeful. And sometimes they press heavy upon us, and sometimes they pull back gently, and sometimes we spin faster, but he's in control. And you know what he calls it? In Ephesians chapter 2, he is the workman, and we are God's poema. That is where we get the English word poem. We are God's poem. We are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. He's still working. He's not done. But he sees it as a wonderful piece, a work of art. Sometimes we will say of someone, that person's a piece of work. It's not exactly a compliment. But it is true. And so are you. You're a piece of work. And you've got more work to be done. Lacking expression, but God gives it beauty. Every pot is an art form. 
God has in mind something beautiful for that. But he is the one who is control and in control. His touch is bold. The true artist. Look at how he's created the world. He is no plotting amateur. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's very hands-on. Have you, during this past year, accused him of being distant? Now, all of this is a setup up to this point. The potter's in total control. He's very hands-on with a purpose as he works with the mud. But here is the thing that you and I need to focus on because this is the real focus of the passage. God is relentless. God is determined. God is lovingly patient. And he's not going to give up on the mud. Look at verse 4. But the pot he was shaping with intention. The pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. A Hebrew word that speaks about some type of defect. It is corrupted. It is flawed. And it wasn't because of his hands. It was found to be so as his hands were doing the work. So the potter gave up. So the potter picked up the mud and threw it against the wall. So the potter said to the customer, take it as it is, discount. No, it says he made it again. Now here's an interesting process. If you've ever had a chance to watch a pottery, uh, potter at work, quite frequently the process of throwing the clay reveals some defect of shaping and molding it. And uh, the, something is wrong, maybe in size or structure or in the clay itself. Then the potter squeezes that developing pot into this mass of clay once again. As though he's giving up. But he's merely recommencing his task. And taking that raw material back to a point from which he can make it beautif beautiful and useful. But the pot... The clay in his hand was marred, so he made it again. As God is working on us, he finds all kinds of blemishes and impurities and defects. Sin, or something less than sin, even just human weakness. Matthew Henry said, sin is the great mischief maker between God and us human beings. It forfeits the benefits of his promise and spoils the success of our prayers. Sin defeats God's kind intentions for us and baffles their positive expectations of him. And so we pray, but it doesn't seem to work because we have forgotten that prayer is also based on repentance and yielding, not my will, but thine be done. This is all about remaking, God says to Jeremiah. I brought you to this place, to a familiar place, things you already know to point out something you don't know. I am in the process of rebuilding Israel or individual lives of believers. And it is time to reshape them. Forty times in the book of Jeremiah, 
God calls his people to repent and return. And when they fail, it is not final. Proverbs 24, verse 6. I love this verse. For a righteous person may fall seven times, yet they rise again. That's grace. You and I fall repeatedly and God in grace picks us up. The clay was marred and he made it again. Who is the potter? God. Who is God? Love. And his love is being seen in the midst of our lives. I find it interesting that in the Hebrew, the word for form or to shape is yatzar. And the word for potter is yatzur, coming from the same root. It is the potter who determines what will happen with the clay. And he is in the remodeling business. Did you notice how messy this process is? <laughs> the Christian life is messy. It's not clean. It's not you just going from one victory to the next. Don't give me that junk about how you are always on top of it and you never have a problem. And you always put up the facade to anyone who is, would ask. Things are great. You must not be alive or conscious. Life is messy. Living the Christian life is really messy. God working on you and me, that's messy stuff. But God is in the remodeling business and he doesn't give up. He has masterfully rebuilt lives of almost total failure, like Simon Peter, like the Apostle Paul. Ruth coming from a Moabitess background or Rahab with her former past, with her past. John Mark with his great failure in missions. And on and on we can go. For God delights in taking that which is imperfect and making it useful and beautiful once again. The files of heaven are filled with stories of redeemed, refitted, renegades and rebels, says Chuck Swindoll. And that is so true. And so is the church. A hospital of people healing. Alexander White said the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings because God finds a flaw and he begins to work again. The Yatzer begins his work of Yatzar, of reshaping and remolding so that we can be something beautiful in his sight once again. So we need to yield and we need to be encouraged. Yielding is that honest, heartfelt surrender to his lordship that includes his plan and that includes the process and it includes the outcome. It is a yielding to the one who knows me better than I know myself. It is a dying to self and a living in Christ. And these are good words for a new year. The potter hasn't given up on you. I would have. You would have given up on me. But God doesn't. 
And we need to be pliable in his hands. By the way, the water that is poured upon the clay, symbolic of the spirit of God that comes into our life and makes us pliable and willing to follow his ways and his will. And then hope. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're good plans. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Are you hopeless this morning? Some of you might be hopeless. Everything you've tried has failed. 2018 has been a horrible year. And while it's just in our imaginations in one sense, it'll be soon a new year. And that is, again, in our minds, an opportunity to start again. God says, I have plans to give you a hope in a future. Then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart and I will be found by you. That's Jeremiah 29. We love to quote the first part of it. I know the plans I have for you, good plans, but we aren't so quick to quote the second. Then you will come to me and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You've got to be all in. And then let the hope of Almighty God take control. A man was going through a garden in California and saw what appeared to be a bush. But as he investigated further, he found out that it was a bird bath under some growth. It looked like a bush, but it wasn't that. It was covered with ivy, hard to see. He said, I'm not a bird and I didn't need a bath, but it grabbed my attention. And as I pulled back the ivy and the overgrowth, I saw, to my surprise, an ornate, beautifully carved bird bath made out of one piece of marble. The flute base was indeed a work of art. The gorgeous bowl surrounded with decorations, but it had fallen into disuse. Putrid water was in the basin, and it had been abandoned by birds altogether. Someone had spent hours of devotion and skill making that what it was, and now decay, inattention, had made it unusable. So with a few hours of hard work, he was able to clear away the brush and clean the bowl. Put some fresh water in and soon it was useful again with birds gladly coming to bathe and to drink. It's a parable I don't need to explain. God has made you so beautiful, so useful. He's making you like Christ. Don't let the overgrowth ruin your purpose. Let him today clip away the brush and find in him once again the potter the artist who is making something beautiful for his glory. We must pray, have thine own way. Let's pray.
Lord, this is a lesson well known to us, even though most of us don't do pottery. But we've seen some of it done, and we've read the scriptures enough to know of the analogy. But today, Lord, I pray that we could enter in in a personal way to understand our relationship with you is based on this image, is at least defined and expressed by this image. And we need to yield, and there is hope when there is repentance. You have not given up. You're determined. You're relentless. But, Lord, we are frail, and we have failed. Help us to get up again, to start anew and afresh, to have the cleansing of Almighty God upon us and the Spirit of Almighty God within us that we can be useful for you today in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.